Hello, and welcome to the Cycling Science Podcast. I'm your host, Professor Richard Davison. In this episode, episode number 12, I have the pleasure of interviewing David Smith, MBE, who is a double world champion and a London 2012 Paralympic gold medalist in rowing. As well, David is an honorary graduate of my university, the University of West of Scotland, and I had the great pleasure of introducing David to our students on graduation day when he was awarded his honorary doctorate. Of course, at this stage, you might be asking, this is a cycling science podcast, so why am I interviewing a rower? Well, shortly after his rowing success, David switched to cycling and was a member of the British Cycling Paralympic squad. And as he reveals in his interview, cycling is his real love and what he's doing just now, training for about 14 hours a week. This interview covers his life story and it's a compelling story of an individual who has overcome significant health challenges, mostly from a tumour in his neck, to become a successful elite athlete across a number of different sports. Having chatted to David on several occasions, he is someone who loves his science and technology, and of course, all of the science associated with cycling. And to quote his website, David is a remarkable individual. He demonstrates passion, purpose, and resilience. This is an incredible story, so I hope you'll enjoy the interview. Okay, folks, uh, welcome to uh, another episode of the Cycling Science Podcast, and it's a great pleasure today to be interviewing uh, David Smith, um, MBE. And some of you may know David, some of you may not, but if I just simply say two times world champion and uh, a London 2012 uh, gold medalist, um, that's uh, certainly the headlines, but uh, there's... uh, a huge story um, in the background uh, in terms of uh, David's life, in terms of uh, coping with uh, adversity, um, but at the same time being able to achieve some fantastic uh, performances, athletic performances. So welcome, David. Thank you, Richard. It's uh, it's a great honour to to be on. I remember when we we first met and uh, it was at the University of West of Scotland and we had that cycling connection right away, and uh, I think we could have spoke for hours about the the technicalities and the data side of cycling. So it's it's a great honour to to be on today and, and chat with you. Yeah, I suppose that's one thing. Yeah, you know, we did. Uh, you're an honorary graduate of uh, of the University of West of Scotland, um, and uh, I must admit uh, that day your speech was uh, I know for everybody. Um, and that graduation, they found it hugely inspiring um, to, to to hear your story. So, you know, I think talking about your story, um, you know, uh, you've always been uh, a keen athlete uh, across a number of different uh, sports. So maybe we could just sort of go into that a little bit. But just before you before you we talk about your athletic um, sort of career, um, you know, the one thing that we need to say right at the beginning, obviously, is that, you know, when when you were born, you you were born with. Um, you know, disability in terms of um, you had uh, two club feet um, and obviously very early on 
then you needed to have some surgery to have have those corrected. Um, but you know, uh, despite I suppose that not such a great start uh, in life because you had to learn to walk uh, at that point and so on, you might think that that's not really a good start point for uh, somebody who's going to be an Olympic um, athlete. But just let us tell us a little bit about you know what happened next. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways it's it's really interesting that uh, having been born with the club foot uh, was was actually ultimately what would save my life uh, 30, 30 years down the line is that when I was born with the club feet, there's also a really high chance, we're not entirely sure at the moment, but it was also a really high chance that I was born with a genetic tumour that sat in the C4 to C6 area of the spinal cord, so that's in, in, in the neck for, for people who, who don't know the different vertebrae, but that's, so I had it at the inside the spinal cord press on the, the, the cord and up until the age of three or four due to the trauma of the feet and potentially the, the, the tumor as well i actually had three or four convulsions where i stopped breathing and was, it was rushed into hospital and was actually diagnosed with epilepsy and i was put on tegretol medication i think probably for the first 10 to 12 years of my life and ultimately, I didn't have uh, epilepsy, so I had I was put on this medication. I had the the trauma from the learning to walk, having the repeated hospital visits for the for the club foot. I was put in special plaster casts and boots. I, I came very very close to actually losing both of my legs from the knee down. So I guess in in terms of creating a, a strong athletic foundation, it it wasn't it wasn't probably the best. But what it did do is it probably somewhere in the subconscious created a, a very strong resilience and I think having that early exposure to to what I guess we could say was challenging situations is that uh, that maybe is what shaped the resilience which was was to come later on in my life but ultimately also gave me the, I guess the mindset to be able to approach sport in a certain way and it was always to approach it with a with an internal drive rather than an external drive. So it was always this sort of how far can I push my body? I just want to master my own mind and my own physiology rather than to win medals and have that external validation. It always was something that came from within. So I think, you know, learning, having that trauma as, as a baby actually probably didn't create the perfect environment to go on to to win world titles and have this this great athletic uh, physiology but what it did is it created I guess the perfect psychology um, so that yeah the starting off was, was pretty challenging and I guess in lots of ways that if you had gone back if I could have found the doctors who you know diagnosed me and treated me with with the foot issues with the epilepsy issues and actually said to them you know if you fast forward this this child is going to go into high performance sport I think they probably would have all said there's no chance in that but I think it's it's testament to my parents it's testament to the environment I grew up in and um, I guess in lots of ways I'm just lucky that uh that I fell into sport and I realized the power of sport and actually what sport can can teach you from a very young age and it's something I've taken through my whole life so I guess I'm just very grateful for having that opportunity uh, seeing it and taking it and yeah, and ultimately it's given me a life in sport. I think that's a really powerful message, David, around, you know, the, you know, the psychology, you know, you know, you can have the physiology, have the body of a champion, but uh, unless you have, the, you know, the correct mindset and uh, the ability to, to deal with 
um, setbacks because you know I don't, it doesn't matter at what level you're uh, exercising, competing. Uh, at, there's always setbacks, and I do love um, on your website, and I would um, you know uh, encourage um, listeners to go to your website, which is uh, simply davidsmithathlete.com. You know, and you have there's one of your headlines, passion, purpose, and resilience. And I think resilience is certainly a, a huge part of um, what I see that you, you know, I suppose partly through, you know, through your adversity, you've got this huge resilience to just, I say, keep keep going on, keep being positive, keep looking at the next opportunity. Um, so um, uh, it's, uh, I think that's uh, a very powerful message. So your first sport was um, was karate. Um, that you that you got into, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I think actually, what's really interesting with karate and, and with all martial arts, and, and you could argue with sport as well, is that it, it gives you a, 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 I guess, in a lot of ways, it conditions your value system. So for me, karate taught me respect. It taught me persistence, resilience, courage. Taught me how to manage fear. And from a very young age, you know, I started karate when I was, I think, around about six or seven. And before that, I, I was skiing because I grew up in the Highlands of Scotland. So I was on skis. I was playing. As soon as you're born in, in Newton Moore, you're basically given a shinty stick. So from a very young age, I had a shinty stick in my hand. Uh, I skied. I did all these all this sport. And I remember the local karate club opened and I was sort of, you know, hassling my mum to take me to this karate club. And when I walked into the dojo, I was I was automatically met with this in those days karate and is very much to this day as well there's obviously the two aspects of karate there's the sport aspect and the martial and the martial art aspect so i was in a traditional shotokan karate club so it was very much uh steeped in the history of of uh respect of you have your sensei and your senpai and you know the sensei is the older higher grade so you always have this mentor almost so from a very young age i was learning these key valuable lessons in life. And actually what was really interesting is Lewis Hamilton, he, he's a black belt in Shotokan karate, and he spoke about the the great sort of way that karate created this disciplined approach to life that he's taken on to his, his F1 career. So actually it's quite interesting when you search through a lot of the athletes who actually have black belts in karate, there's actually quite a lot. So for me, starting off in karate was great, and I think it, it gave me that respect. But also it taught me how to breathe, and this... I've only just recently started thinking about this and how important breathing is in managing the sympathetic and parasympathetic and sort of the autonomic nervous system. And it's something I've used a lot in my recovery and in my training. And uh, from a young age, the very first karate lesson we did at six year old was actually breathing work and how to challenge that energy. And, you know, a lot of people, especially back then, associated karate with the, actually you're teaching people how to fight. And you're actually not. You're teaching people how to have emotional intelligence, emotional regulation, controlling that anger, controlling the fear, being able to manage your body. So from a really young age, I started to learn all these key lessons. And I, I speak to my old karate instructor quite a lot now on, via, via email. And I actually say to him, you know, one of the reasons I'm, I'm alive and been able to manage multiple tumor diagnoses, multiple paralysis and the pain of surgery is actually down to the karate. Every surgery I've gone into, I've actually gone into it uh, as if I was going to step onto the mat and fight. And I guess one thing I've learned through the whole time of cancer diagnosis, tumor diagnosis, is that it's very individual to the individual person. And the language used can, 
it can slightly upset people because what works for one person doesn't work for someone else. And for me, it's it's very individual. But for me, on a personal level, the the lessons I learned in karate from the age of six, and I did karate all the way until I was about 18, 19, and I'm still heavily involved now with the British team, is that what it did is it gave me that inner language and inner mindfulness that I could manage my tumor. And ultimately, it helps in other sports and it's helped win medals at world championships but ultimately what karate taught me was to be able to manage my own emotions and that self-awareness and that's what's basically got me through multiple surgeries and and yeah and i, and I loved karate i thought it was great I, I loved the the punches the kicks the fun side of it um i was useless at the the, the kata and that side of it but i was actually i hated the fighting but i was actually i was actually pretty decent at the fight and I think because I was so tall for my age uh, and, and I absolutely loved it I trained you know six seven days a week anytime you know even in the house if I wasn't in the dojo I was in my house with a karate suit on kicking and punching and watching uh, Bruce Lee movies so uh, it was it was a great foundation for me and, and I think it's something that I know that active schools in Scotland have, have embraced some work and they've done some work with the with some of the karate clubs and it's, it's it's great and i went to the british championships a few years ago with the british karate federation we had there was almost 1200 competitors at the, at the british championships and most of them were under 18 so i think it's, it's testament to the work that especially in scotland that the the guys in scotland are doing that you know that karate is reaching a mass population which i think is great for for the kids so, you know, you, you, you say, obviously, you were successful. You were in the British team for, for several years at World Championships and so on. But there was a problem, wasn't there, really, that um, at that point in time, you know, it wasn't Olympic sport and you had this desire to become an Olympian. Yeah, I, I blame I blame the Baxters for that. <laughs> Growing up in the Highlands, obviously, I was surrounded by, by Olympic athletes. There was Mike Dixon, who's a biathlete, who went on to six Olympics to... Andrew Freshwater, uh, obviously Alan Nobaxter, uh, Sean Lamieux. There was a there was a whole host of Olympians coming out of the valley, and obviously that that's massively inspiring when you're in sport. And at that point, I started to really fall in love with the Olympic ideology and you know, go, going to something where you you're testing yourself against the best in the world. Karate is uh, is an amazing sport, but it's very fragmented and very political and it's split into all sorts of different associations. And and for me, I, yeah, I start, as I grew older, I started to realize this and I started to realize the limitations of the, especially the association I was in. And I thought, you know, I actually want to, to pursue something. If I do go to the world championships, the whole world are there, not just a very small population. And the association I was in was a very small one. So I, I started to... Uh, I guess it, all, it was like an organic growth almost. I started to fall in love with athletics, uh, different sports. And, I, and then, yeah, I find myself uh, training as a 200-meter, 400-meter runner in, in Petrivi. And again, you know, I was exposed to, to great athletes. Uh, I shared the track with Ian Mackey, who automatically then became somebody that I seen as a mentor, seen as an inspiration. And... Uh, Basically, I, I, I had the privilege of, of training alongside Ian Mackey for, for several years. And it was, you know, again, it was, I applied myself 100%. Uh, I, I gave it everything. Uh, I guess in a lot of way back, back then, it was 1998. 
a lot of access to the information that we have now was really limited. I did all my strength and conditioning programs were done through Muscle and Fitness magazine at the local gym. And uh, I was just sort of under the philosophy of well, the more I run and the more I train, the faster I'm going to go. And obviously that has a very limited shelf life. Uh, so my, my time in athletics was definitely hampered. Possibly you could say the, the way I approached training, but ultimately it was also hampered very much because of the tumor and of the uh, club foot. And that ultimately cut that short. I think I only managed to do two or three seasons in athletics. I, I was very lucky to to come away with an East of Scotland for an Amir title, but that was really, that was the, I guess, the highest level I reached. So um, obviously, uh, you know, that, you know, running around the bends was, was creating a bit of a problem for you, um, despite your... Uh, uh, desire to train hard as as hard as possible. So um, you decided to switch sport again this time to um, obviously. Yeah, I, I, yeah, it's kind of a weird one, and I sit and reflect back now a lot on this, and I think to myself that actually I I was eligible for Paralympic sport my whole life because of my feet, and I often think back and think, wow, if actually somebody had spotted that maybe back then that my whole sporting career could have taken a complete turn or maybe I would have gone to one games and thought, well, this is not for me and, and quit, or maybe I wouldn't have been interested in it. It's it's so hard to, to know. Uh, but yeah, I, 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 I wouldn't say I gave up in athletics. I would say that possibly that the frustration of constantly being injured and not being able to run off the bend became a huge frustration. And I remember sitting at home and watching Eurosport and there was there was Bobsley on the TV and I just thought, well, that looks that looks amazing. I was living in a winter resort, I guess. It was all winter athletes. And I made a few calls to the British Bobsley team. Uh, and before I knew it, I was standing at the top of a track in Lillehammer uh, pushing a two man sled. And, you know, it was it was a great experience again. I guess I never really fulfilled my potential because of the tumor, because of the club foot. I was constantly not really, I was probably only ever functioning at 60% of, of what I could probably do uh, due to you know, the, the tumor obviously is wrapped around the spinal cord in the neck. We know the spinal cord is you know, responsible for keeping us alive and, uh, and it, it's so many functions. But when we look at it, what the spinal cord's function is in high performance sport, then it's it's a crucial part of the the puzzle, and if there's any damage in the spinal cord, then you know we're not we're not going to be performing at 100. percent So when you're talking performing at an Olympic level, and you need everything to be working at 100, percent your physiology, your psychology, your whole well-being, I, I really struggled there. So uh, again, I never really reached uh, I would say a decent level. Uh, I got on the British team. I, I competed. I competed in Olympic selections. But I would I would never say I was I was actually any good at that sport. Um, I think it was definitely a stepping stone for me finding out my my true potential. And I think what I really realised is that I'm predominantly a power in, well predominantly an endurance athlete actually. And here was me and trying to mix it in a power sport. So that was never my genetics were never really going to allow me to 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 function at that level. And it wasn't until I I found Rowan that I realised that actually my genetics are more suited to that sort of power endurance, endurance-based sport. So, um, yeah, it took, it was, it was a great experience. I made lifelong friends, but ultimately I guess my genetics 
we're we're definitely not predisposed to be pushing a 200 kilo sled for five seconds. Hmm. So you, you you sort of touched on it there. Then obviously you 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 know you realised that uh, you know uh, bobsleigh wasn't for you, and and uh, and that that took you down the the rowing. Uh, aspect and you kind of alluded as well about you know uh, in terms of uh, the para sport you know actually you know you qualified for that so why are you not doing it so you know that led you very quickly then into the you know uh, the british para uh, rowing uh, uh, squad um and probably not surprisingly you know knowing your pedigree you know that that resulted in success quite quickly with uh World Championship gold in in two thousand and nine. Yeah, it, it came within within six months of taking up the sport. I, I I'd been a world champion, and that again, that's not really testament to me. It's more testament to the the team. And also, I was very lucky to jump into a boat with with three experienced rowers, so that definitely helped. But I, you know, it was it was such an amazing opportunity, and I mean, I owe so much to to GB Rowan and to Paralympics and GB for 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 that experience and I think I remember when I had the chance to go down that road it was actually from a physio in Edinburgh who was a classifier and I was working with her uh, with just some back issues I had and she said you know you classify for Paralympic sport and that really planted the seed I went away and I started to read about it and learn about it and actually what this was and I was like wow this is this is an amazing opportunity and I I spent a lot of time with a friend of mine Ewan McCarthy at the time he was a, a British orienteer and I spoke about him with him, you know, the, you know, what, what's this going to be like? What's the perception of, of me going to Paralympic sport? My only real experience and knowledge of it was was wheelchair racing or or seeing amputees. And I was thinking, how am I going to be judged when I come along at six foot four and 105 kilos? And there's to physically look at me, there's there's nothing wrong. I have clubfoot. So that was something I actually had to really just kind of get over my my own hurdles, my own inner critic almost and that perception and what was really interesting when I did go to the Paralympics work for the first time I I did receive some emails that were and messages on my phone that weren't very nice and they were actually from people who were friends and I, I quickly realized at that point that I didn't really need that network of friends in in my phone so it was, for me it was not just an opportunity in sport it was actually a great opportunity to to have a little bit of a clear out from some of the toxic people I guess that were around my circle that I wasn't really aware of and that brought out their true colors so it was a great opportunity for real change and I remember my first session in Caversham with the British own team and I was just like this this is incredible to to drop into this high performance world surrounded by Olympic champions world champions I thought this is this is an amazing opportunity to take and and I grabbed it with both hands and I'm so lucky I did because if I hadn't I might not be sitting speaking to you today because it was a combination of that high performance network and system that actually diagnosed me with my first tumor. So, um, so that was really, you know, I, I suppose you know, and this comes to some of the, if you like, the science, you know, behind it, you know, that um, mm. sort of high level, high quality monitoring um, was really part of the diagnosis if you like the realization that actually there's something not quite right here David you should be doing better and I think you know you felt that you know that you know there was more potential there but it wasn't and and that's when more investigation uh, then started and 
and the first realization of this this tumor in, in right in the in your neck yeah i think for me it was the really first time that i had probably merged science and art of the sport i think up until then you could probably argue i was just you know it was going with a blindfold it was just all about the art and the love of it but i never really too understood science so being immersed in this this high performance program with physiologists nutritionists psychologists it was the first real exposure and i remember my because british Rowan track everything and every session's tracked with, with blood lactates watts heart rates power splits and from the work i was putting in i wasn't really getting the results back and we had a, a you know daily monitor and heart rates etc all the all the information was a little bit skewed and it pointed almost to the point where the coach thought I was actually going out and drinking most nights because I wasn't getting any sleep. And the physiologist at the time, Sierra Girls, said, well, we're, we'll put on a sleep monitor on you. We'll start tracking your, your, your throughout the day what's happening with your stress levels, etc." So as they were doing the physiological testing, the physio was also working mechanically on me. And I was having lots of, for 10 years, I'd been having like strange cult, cult, um, sort of, seizures uh my body was like freezing up almost like a rigor mortis style in the morning sometimes if i trained really hard the day before so i was having tons of neurological issues and it basically after i think it was about three or four months of investigations and obviously it was coming up with no results everyone was completely baffled scratching their head to actually what was going on here eventually somebody said actually we need let's just do an MRI scan. We, we know that athletes are prone to bulging discs, especially in rowing. Let's just scan the whole spine and see what's there. And ultimately that scan was, uh, I guess it was a, a life-saving scan, but ultimately it was the, the first scan of what would unravel to now be a 10-year fight uh, with, with a tumor. So um, yeah, that, that first scan, was was a pretty big day of my life, and that that came uh, two two years before the London Games. So obviously, uh, finding that and getting that diagnosis meant you know a fairly immediate um, need uh, for an operation, um, and an unusual process I think because you know the the realization that um, uh the you know the sport that you wanted to excel in if if they actually entered uh the, you know the ideal uh way to, to do the operation was through the back of, of of the neck um and so on but that that would have uh neuromuscular consequences which would probably have uh, limited your rowing at that point in time so so they decided to do a slightly unusual operation and go in more in the front and uh, to try and remove this tumor um but uh, so that that, that was uh, they went in and they removed the tumor and that was successful. But then uh, a couple of days later, you started to experience some problems, didn't you? Yeah. So after the the initial surgery, where they obviously they, they cut through the front of the neck, they do a laminectomy to the vertebrae. They then cut into the dura of the spinal cord, open up. So it's a pretty complex uh, complex five hours of your life, and they, they you know they put you back together and you wake up in ICU and. You're kind of like, wow, what what happened there? Uh, a few days later, I was I was sent home, and it wasn't when I was sent home what actually started to happen is a, there was a blood clot started to form in the spinal cord where the tumor was, and I was basically starting to suffer a spinal stroke, 
and that has huge consequences. Uh, well, that means you can die, you can die from that. So whilst I was at home, I started to lose all bodily functions, and I didn't really want to make a huge fuss, so I didn't really call the ambulance. I remember calling the hospital, and they were like, "Yeah, you need to, you need to get here pretty quickly." So my friend, who lived a couple of doors down, bundled me into his car. We drove to Oxford. It was about a 50-minute drive, and I remember just. I, I basically was fighting for my life and we were we were chatting about sport the whole way there he's a, he was a journalist so we were just chatting about sport and I got to the hospital doors I fell into a wheelchair I was rushed into into a room I was put basically onto drips and had medication sort of pumped into me I guess to stabilize the spinal cord and then I had a scan and the scan revealed look you, you have this blood clot in your in your spinal cord at your neck at the C4 level so again it hit drifted up slightly to the brainstem, then I would have I would have died. So I, that required uh, an emergency surgery to be performed to decompress the spinal cord. And again, when this is all happening, you're it's so interesting because it's everything's happening so fast, you have no real idea what's going on and, and no real way to control it. I just tried to stay in an athlete's mindset, you know, trying to do my breathing exercises, my visualization work, and ultimately just try and stay calm which i guess was all those years of karate had, had subconsciously programmed into me so i went through that second surgery and then i, I woke up in a hospital bed and I, I could barely move from the neck down i was i had this like temporary almost like paralysis just it was like my body had just gone to sleep and uh, I, I basically lay there for a month uh, looking at the roof Ultimately, high performance sport doesn't wait for you. The clock was ticking towards London at this point. And uh, I be, the only thing I could really do was train my mind, to be honest, Richard. Uh, I, I knew the power of the mind. And I, I started uh, doing all of the physical sessions. The coaches were still sending me through the programs. And rather than doing them physically, I just did them mentally. And I think that had a, a huge impact on the, the recovery, but also the muscle memory, the neurological stuff, I think was there. And within six months, I was I was back in a boat uh, taking part in the British trials. And uh, obviously then, uh, so, you know, very intensive sort of rehabilitation. You're back in the boat and 2011, you managed to then be in a, a world championship uh, again, when winning a world championship. So that was, must have been nice. Yeah, it was an amazing feeling, uh, you know, to be back on the start line. And it, what, what it really taught me was to actually really savor those moments. I, re, I realized very quickly in hospital when you're lying there in a hospital gown and you're sort of fighting for your life and you're seeing people around you take that last breath. It, it almost doesn't really matter how much external things you have. It's very much you're, you're left with memories and memories are created through experiences. And, you know, sometimes you go through life and you don't really savor those experiences. And for me, I thought this is, you know, this is an amazing experience to be sat. I think it was 14 months after the surgery to be sat on the World Championship start line, and I just thought this, this is, this is an incredible experience. It doesn't really matter if we, if we win or lose or whatever. It's just, you know, be, being in the moment and really being present and enjoying it. And um, it was, it was a phenomenal experience. And also, that was the qualification race for London. So yeah, we, we, we beat the Canadians, I think, by three or four seconds that day. We, we were world champions and the boat had qualified for London. And I guess all the trauma and the diagnosis from the chairman and everything then became a real distant memory. And it was about, okay, everything's 
geared towards the London Games. It's a home games, and we want to go there and come away with nothing but a gold medal. And and you know that was again, I was in a very lucky place. I could have died, and you know here I am. I was alive, and I was back at high performance sport, and I guess in a lot of ways live, living living the dream life um, as as an athlete. So yeah, I, I look back with very fond memories of that period uh, even though it was an excruciating rehabilitation and everything about it was horrendous and I remember many many days saying to myself mentally look I could never go through this again I've had my tumor thank you that's it there's no way I could ever learn how to walk again I I went from 105 kilos to 69 kilos I had barely the strength to stand up uh, and I just thought to myself, there's no way I could ever go through that again. Um, little did I know that I was going to have to go through it another four or five times. But um, at that point, I was thinking, okay, this is yeah, this is it. Just let's get back into sport and you know, basically park that memory. So anyway, you know, I, I obviously, you know, that you, you and, the, and the rest of the team went on to win uh, in, in London 2012, and uh, you know, you know, you. you talked there very much about you know um, living that experience and, and remembering it and so on but you know I suspect that you know obviously London 2012 was very successful for for all British teams but you know it must have been such a uh, an experience to have been part of that success in a home games and I suppose that's you know such a unique experience there's very very few Olympians get that opportunity, so uh, you know that must have been just brilliant. It, it was it was an amazing moment, and you know, in a lot of ways, I can almost say that it was possibly one of the greatest things was having that tumor. It was a real gift because it gave me a real appreciation for life. It really, I remember when I came out of surgery, uh, you know, I hadn't breathed fresh air for for months, and when I got home and I, I really started to notice little things like even just the birds making a noise so when I got to compete at home games as a home athlete I noticed that my sense of awareness was was heightened beyond belief because I'd come so close to dying and sometimes you know it, it's crazy that it takes this near-death experience to really heighten these senses but uh, I guess what I did is it I, I started to change my relationship to mortality and I started to realize okay we're not going to live forever uh, we all have this expiration date and because I had really come so close to that I had this huge awareness so everything that happened in and around London I can actually almost replay it in my mind now like it's a videotape I have a real clear memory of it I was so happy that I, I took tons of photos I I remember almost everything that happened and it's it's it's, it's yeah it was a, it's a beautiful memory it's the only games I've ever been to and I think yeah I, you're ever going to go to only one games and to do it in your home games was, was a pretty special thing. And I think also as far as the Paralympics go, it was a real, uh, it was a real coming of age of the Paralympics. I think at that point, the world really embraced Paralympic sport and really seen it for what it is. It's not a bunch of disabled people doing sport. It's actually, you know, it's real high level sport and there is, there is no difference. It does run parallel to the Olympics and, it is about high performance sport and people having the same dreams, the same aspirations and goals. And I think that London really showcased that. And it, and behind every Paralympic medal, there's a, there's an incredible story uh, behind pretty much every medal, whether that's a congenital 
disability or something that's happened later on in life. I think there's so many great stories out there about fantastic values of courage and gratitude and, and persistence that for me to be part of that was, was a huge honor. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, uh, obviously, you know, you can hear the, you know, the passion in your voice about, you know, the rowing and how much you enjoyed it and so on. But, you know, after, after London 2012, you know, the, uh, you know, with your operations and stuff, I think you began to realize that actually rowing maybe wasn't going to be, uh, you know, sort of a long term for you that, you know, you're not sure, you know, you think you weren't sure whether your body would be able to stand up to it. And that's when you decided to, to look at cycling. Um, right. But, which, you know, had you done, you know, what was your cycling up until that point? Because we haven't, you know, this is this is a cycling podcast. We haven't really talked about cycling yet, but, you know, in the background, had you always been a cyclist? Yeah, I'd always loved the sport. Um, you know, I, I'd had a great part. I love all sports. I, I'd been out on a bike a few times. I, I worked with the British ski team as a coach for, for a, a year and a bit. And, you know, part of their training was cycling. So I used to do a little bit of cycling with the guys there. And when we had a lot of alpine camps, uh, I was the, the driver in the support car. So, I, yeah, I'd, I'd sort of grown up, you know, Craig McLean grew up in the Valley. So I obviously had followed Craig's career. So I'd always had a great passion. And as a rower, we did a lot, a lot of rehab and, and a lot of training on on, this, on the walk bikes. And on, we didn't technically on the road, but we did a lot of cycling work. For me, when I left London, I just knew that I didn't I didn't love rowing enough to commit to another four years. And I thought, well, I've, I've won world titles. I've won the Olympic level. I don't have the commitment and also the stress of the, of the, the tumor and everything. I just wanted to close that chapter. And I went home to Abbeymore. It was winter. I spent the whole winter skiing. And then in the summer came around, uh, there was an old bike sitting in my garage that uh, I got when I was with the British ski team. And, and no bags says, lad, to me, oh, let's go out cycling. So one one of the first cycles we did was a 130 mile loop. We rode from Aviemore down to Fort William, across by Spean Bridge, up the Great Glen, over the sort of windmill farms of near Tomatin and back to Aviemore, and and it was it was horrendous. <laughs> I experienced bonking for the first time, but I absolutely loved it. And I remember getting home to my house and, and collapsing in the living room, still with my cycling helmet on, legs up on the sofa, and I fell asleep and woke up an hour later, still lying there. And I just thought this is this is awesome. This is like possibly the best sport I've ever done, and to experience that freedom and that challenge. And obviously, I was going to fall in love with time trial and the you know the ultimate I guess, race of of truth. And the yeah, the next next ride I did was a national park loop, which was 160 miles, and and I absolutely loved loved it. And before long, before I knew it, I'd bought myself a time trial bike, and I was. You know, stood in a, a lay-by on a Wednesday night with another 50 people who are all as mad as I was trying to, to you know, to, to go fast over 10 miles. And ultimately, at that point, I just, yeah, I, I had no idea about the, I guess, the, the technical side of it, the data side of it, the science side of it. I just loved the pure rawness of trying to smash myself as hard as I could for, for 10 miles. And straight after that, I started to realize about aero wheels parameters and all that and then when i started to get into that side of it then i really fell in love with it and i just have i love having that autonomy and, and control of of all that variables and trying to go faster and ultimately i think what was great is the the challenge off the bike with the tumor gave me the strength 
for what I needed on the bike and at the same time having the I guess the resilience and the what the physiology and the psychology that on the bike did prepared me for the the hospital stuff so they they kind of worked in a paradoxic fashion where I needed both of them and I and I, a lot of ways I, I think to myself I have these two races in life I have one race on the bike where I'm trying to go faster and then the other race where I'm actually trying to slow something down and they've kind of both tangibly met and there's been this I guess this romantic story between a, a race for life both on and off the bike for the last mm-hmm. 10 years so yeah going into cycling has been a, a pr- pretty big thing actually cycling is is um it's not really been about winning medals or anything it's it's been a huge huge part of my life and obviously we've focused a lot on other sports and there's been success in other sports and maybe more success than there has been in cycling but cycling is something that's uh i don't even it's like more of a need now it's something that's really uh plays a huge huge part in my life it's funny you know i i often refer to uh, cycling as a virus um you know and it's a latent one you, you never really get rid of it so you know you might throughout life you know that if you know you started when you're young i i started uh, you know my father introduced me to cycling so you know i had my first race when i was about 10 or 11 um and uh you know so there, there's times when i haven't ridden my bike as much but it is something that you just always want to get back to as you say you know it's the freedom that's getting out it's just uh it's it's enjoyable and i think that's the beauty with cycling is that you can do it at any age and you can take to it at any age i think we've seen that during covid bike sales are now through the roof that's right yeah yeah more than what 1.3 million bikes sold during lockdown so uh uh, and, you know, and I've seen it myself, you know, when you go out, um, you know, at, at the moment, as I did at the weekend, um, you do see a lot of uh, a lot more people out cycling and just, you know, not not the the mammals, as we would say, are lycra clad uh, people, but just uh, people out enjoying riding the bike, which is great. I think it's great. And I, I'm I'm just if I hadn't found cycling and I found it in 2013 at the start of, uh, you know, just as the as the snows melted and for me that yeah it kicked off it's it's been a, a, an amazing experience over the last since 2013 until now and, it, and it's it's definitely you know with the para- i'm paralyzed down one side of my body from the neck and I, I really struggle to walk i can get on my bike and ride 100 miles and to have that freedom is is it's almost impossible to put into words yeah. So, you know, you mentioned there, obviously, 2013 is, is when you get into the bike and, and, you know, probably not surprisingly, you know, with your athletic pedigree that, um, you know, it, it's not very long until you're in the British Cycling uh, Paralympic Academy program. Um, so obviously then at that point in time in sort of uh, early 2014 or so, you know, the target is Rio. Um, you know, you, you having tasted Olympic success, you want more. Um, however, um, there was a major problem. Yeah, unfortunately, I, I've had scans every six months, and I'll never forget this scan. This was a huge turnaround. This was four years after really after surgery in 2010. So they always sort of say, you know, if you get five years free, you kind of off the hook almost in certain certain ways. So I remember it was the. It was the opening day of the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow. I was, I was working as an ambassador for the Scottish team and I went down to Oxford to, to get the results of a scan. And I remember I did a time trial uh, just before the Commonwealth Games and I really struggled to get any power out. And 
the numbers I was putting out in training just didn't weren't there. And that was a little bit of a worry because I thought, oh, wow, that doesn't that doesn't look good. And this was the great thing with, you know, tracking this information is you you can see that there's probably not something that something not right in the body. So automatically, my psychology is going back to thinking the, the what if buildings, what if bridges. And ultimately, I, I remember walking into the surgeon's room in Oxford that day and he, he said, look, the latest scans come back and there's there's definitely what we thought was scar tissue originally is not scar tissue it's actually it's actually tumor and it's grown to a, a level that we're, we're going to have to go back in and operate on on that on that site so automatically your mindset goes triggers all the way back to that first surgery the the pain the you know the, the learning to walk losing all that weight the muscle everything the, all the excruciating rehabilitation and all these emotions run through your brain in within like 30 seconds and I asked obviously all the obvious questions you ask about this the situation stepped outside the room after 30 minutes of conversation with the neurosurgeon and I remember it was the bike stage of the triathlon playing on the TV so I sat down and and started crying and then I was like right I need to get myself together I uh, jumped on a train and went back to Glasgow and I was rooming with Jamie Corey who was at the Cathley and he's like you know how, how did it go and I was like I've got a tumor again I'm gonna have to go for surgery and he's like what are you doing here and I was like well I had nowhere else to go and what better place to be in you know in in the middle of the Commonwealth Games you know that I just immersed myself into into sport like I always I've always done but in the back of my mind I knew post Commonwealth Games I was going to be I was going to be back in surgery and for me it was heartbreaking because I'd done so much training on the bike I was I was in great shape uh, I was podiuming on time trials in the north of Scotland against able-bodied riders it was I was I was loving it and um, I was in I was in great shape and unfortunately yeah in October I think it was I, I walked into surgery in Oxford they had to cut the back of my neck this time they cut right down the back of the neck went in did a five-hour surgery and, and I woke up after that surgery like I was basically I'd never done any sport in my life I'd completely wasted away I was lying in a bed unable to move and I had to go through the whole rehabilitation process again but I think I was back on an indoor bike three weeks after surgery and I was back riding an outdoor bike in Spain three months post-surgery and within six months I'd gone and uh, did the club the singles on the Mont Ventoux so it was it was a pretty quick turnaround from diagnosis to surgery through the rehabilitation and back onto a bike yeah so and and uh Obviously, uh, I, I'll uh, at this point direct our listeners to uh, to, to Google um, uh, "Dead Man Cycling," which was the documentary that was uh, created around that uh, process of you know going for the operation and the rehab. And uh, you know, I think, um, Crikey, I think, in somewhat you, you you in in your description there have diminished uh, that journey somewhat. Uh, I think anybody who watches that documentary will be struck by the, uh, the you know the sheer difficulty of that journey and and just the you know so it is very worth watching just because it gives a real insight to a process that you've unfortunately had to endure several times throughout your life in terms of this as you described it there you know you wake up post-operation 
um, and and basically, you know, you've wasted away. You know, you've you've got you've got you know, you have to learn how to walk again and and do basic um, sort of day to day things are quite a struggle. All the way to you know, at the end of the documentary, where you you know you attempt to do these three ascents of Mont Ventoux. And for many people, um, you know, uh, one ascent is, <laughs> is quite a lot. Um, you know, um, or, or somebody, was, asked me, somebody asked me, they're like, well, I don't see the big deal. I, I went and did the Comde singles. And I was like, yeah, but uh, were you paralyzed six months before that? I <laughs> in a hospital bed and he went, oh, no. And I said, that's why it was so hard. <laughs> yeah. said, you know, but for you, you had, you know, you used it for um, a purpose. You know, you, you yeah. I think you'd seen it as a, as a, as a, as a target because, you know, you still, your big ambition was still, Rio at that point, you know, and, uh, you know, that was, you know, uh, I suppose a focus and, you know, you, I think you've talked a lot about, you know, um, you know, this, uh, the psychological bit that it's really important to have, you know, a target, you know, for them. And, and certainly it comes through quite strongly in that documentary that, you know, this was a, a you know, was an intermediate goal, uh, towards, uh, Rio, um, was to do these, uh, three, uh, ascents of Mont Ventoux. Um, yeah, I think so obviously really to have that to have that goal when you know when you wake up and you can't move in a hospital bed okay the the, the long-term goal was to get to to Rio but that was just so unrealistic lying in a hospital bed it was easier to have these little micro goals each day you know, okay I'm going to sit up okay then the goal is to get back on the bike and first of all it was just to ride once up one two and then uh and then I discovered the club the singles and then it's like okay I can do it three times and it's like that target, okay, six months time I can get there and then if I can get there then I can go on and, and start racing again and, and make the real team. So yeah, it was it was a pretty important thing to have that that goal post surgery. And it was enjoyable. It wasn't racing, it wasn't competing against anyone else. It was just that okay, it was just for myself. There was I wasn't doing it for anybody else. It was just to see if I could if I could do that. So so you you managed that, but of course then uh, unfortunately Pretty soon after that, we're back to square one again. Yeah, unfortunately, and it wasn't far after that. I remember doing my, my first uh, World Cup time trial in Maniago in Italy, uh, which is which is an amazing part for paracycling because it's, it's, it's home to Zanardi. So there's a big following of, of paracycling there. So there people were lined in the streets. It was it was an incredible experience. And again, everything was, was going on target and in September 2015, I had a scan and they were like, I'm so sorry, the tumor has come back again. And I said, oh my ear, this is, you, you can't even write this stuff. Um, and he said, look, but there is, it's a slow growing tumor as these tumors are. So he said, look, there's, we don't have to have surgery right now. There's no, you don't need to be going to surgery right now. You know, go away and, and we, we will monitor it as that's one of the treatment plans for for, us, for a tumor like this is to, is to monitor it and we can we can address on another six month scan so i went away thinking okay i could still make it to rio and then uh this was september 2015 fast forward to march 2016 three four weeks out from the world championships i'd had a scan in february and that scan result came back and it showed the tumor had grown to a certain level that we, we couldn't wait anymore. It was basically, okay, we need to go to surgery in the next few weeks. 
And you know, when, I just there's there's so much emotions around that, and I think a lot now I've actually blocked a lot of what's happened to me, and it's not until I watch some videos and look back and think, okay, wow, that there's been a lot of trauma here that I've gone through. So I had I had a pretty quick decision to make that okay, I ain't going to the World Championships. Rio's definitely off the cards, but. In the past, these surgeries have been successful. You know, they, they've went in, they've removed the tumor. I've woken up, okay, I've woken up and I've had to learn to walk again, but I know how to do this. And I know, and it's, it's really interesting, you know, uncertainty breeds huge amounts of anxiety. But if you're, if you know what's coming ahead, you can ultimately, you can plan, you can have a strategy. Okay, you know how hard it's going to be. It's going to be horrendous. The pain is going to be horrendous. The emotional, journeys horrendous everything about it is horrendous but ultimately you come back out the other end and within three four months you can be back living again so i was like okay i know what's coming i i can i i can plan for this and i can do it and i can do it again and i can be back on the bike okay rio's not going to happen but there's tokyo there's world championships there's all this other other stuff and there's more to life than just this this one race every four years so I was thinking, okay, I, I can do this. So I, I walked into surgery. Uh, this, this time it was a 10-hour surgery. And I woke up in ICU and life was never going to be the same again. And I was I was completely paralyzed from the neck down on one side of my body. And uh, it was really interesting. The doctor in ICU was a cyclist. And he used to speak to me, you know, after he'd finished his shift, he'd come and sit next to my bed in ICU and we'd just talk about cycling. And I remember in that bed, I set two goals. I said, you know, I can't remember his name, but I said, you know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cycle the Grand des Alpes from Geneva to Monaco in six months' time and I'm going to ride for Great Britain again. And he's like that to me. He's like, yeah, yeah, I, I believe you can do that. And here's me lying in this ICU bed, completely unable to move. And eight weeks later, I was still lying in a neurological ward in Oxford, looking at the roof, unable to move. And six months later, I was still in hospital. By the night, I was in a wheelchair, but I couldn't stand. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't even get onto a bike. And I was in a national spinal hospital rehabbing. But I still held on to the belief that I was going to ride across the Alps and I was going to ride for Great Britain again. Okay, it wasn't going to happen in six months like Vaughn too, but it was still going to happen. And and having that that goal, having that purpose, and you know, Vic, Victor, I read Victor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning at that point, and he said that to live is to suffer, but to find meaning in the suffering, to find a, a why. If you know your why, you can withstand anyhow. And at that point, I realized what my philosophy was. I had this meaning, this purpose, and everything I did was to to get back onto a bike. It just was going to take some time to go this this I didn't realize that when you're paralyzed down one side of your body or any sort of paralysis, how challenging life is. I mean I had people washing me, I had people brushing my teeth, uh, I couldn't get dressed. Uh, it, it was absolutely horrendous, you know, from just trying to do the, the bathroom. All of a sudden, it becomes this huge, huge problem to try and just go to the bathroom is now a huge issue. And a lot around spinal cord injuries, you, you people see the injury, but they don't realize everything that's gone on inside the body with the injury, the bowel control, bladder control, your temperature regulation. There's, it's, a, it's like learning to live 
all over again. You can take the manual that you have on your life and just throw it out the window because you need a whole new manual for this. And you almost have to go and do a degree in, in the body to understand what, what is actually going on. So I was pretty lucky that I, at that point I went away and I studied neurobiology, psychology, and I, I really started to become a real student of my of everything that was going on and I just slowly started to rebuild it. It was like having all the pieces of a jigsaw and I just started to rebuild very, very slowly to the, I started off on a trike in the hospital hallway and I was zooming around inside the hospital on a trike. And then eventually I got myself onto a mountain bike in 20, the end of 2016, I think it was. And by 2017, I was back on the track and, and I raced a pursuit in November 2017 and that I got a bronze medal in a, a very small international race that that medal to me means more than my any Olympic medal that that medal to go from that ICU unit to that pursuit race was uh was was an horrendous journey to go through and again I do remember obviously when we when we chatted around the time when uh, we were awarding you your your honorary doctorate that um you know you were still at that point sort of required to be lifted onto a bike and uh you know so you know because of your paralysis um but obviously once on there then then you could you could go around uh, pretty well yeah and and I needed cycling at this point why what, what I wasn't aware of is at this point I had no idea of the Kruber Ross stages of grief of grief and when you I lost my identity. I had lost everything whilst lying in hospital for this amount of time. And, you know, I, you lose you lose your physical identity, but I'd also lost my mental identity. So I never I couldn't identify as an athlete or anything. When I came out of hospital and I was just trying to integrate back into society, I was falling over in the street. I, I couldn't make dinner. I couldn't do anything. And I was like, oh, my God, I, I need to get on a bike. I, I just it's the only way of me wanting to almost wanting to live. And I remember at my lowest, I was, I was having suicidal thoughts at one point. I was saying, I can't, I can't live like this. So when I went back to British cycling, they had to lift me physically onto a bike. I could cycle around the velodrome. When it came to stop, the coaches had to catch me and they had to lift me off the bike. There was a huge, I guess the saying it's like riding a bike was not actually true because it was, it was pretty difficult to start riding a bike again. It wasn't, it wasn't an easy thing to do. Then you had to build up the confidence of going back outside to try and ride on the road. Uh, so it was, it was a really hard and challenging time and, um, that I needed it. And actually when I, yeah, when I came to the university to meet you guys, I, I was in a really bad place mentally at that point because I, I'd only kind of just got back onto the velodrome, but I was really struggling with, with life and trying to again to find this purpose and this meaning and just generally trying to function uh i couldn't go out on the street i had anxiety around the bowel and the bladder side if i'd went to the shops there was there was times where i i couldn't control bowel and bladder and find myself in a pretty embarrassing situation in in, in the shops and it, it was seriously challenging and cycling at that point gave me the freedom it gave me something to, to target something that I could tangibly hold in my hand and say okay this is I, I, I want to do this and I still had these two goals I still had to ride for Great Britain and cycle across the Alps and at this point I, I couldn't really cycle along the street but it gave me a focus and it gave me something that I could every day wake up and say okay how do I go from this to, to riding across the whole of the Alps and it's amazing when you apply yourself to something, how quickly time goes. You know, I, I was getting into 
I guess what is known now in neuroscience is flow. So I was getting into that flow state. So that has a huge cascade of, of neurotransmitters. Which, so I was feeling great. I was having all the dopamine and serotonin and all this, this, this amazing feelings in my body. And I just wanted more of that. And the only way to get that was on the bike. So I just slowly went out and just rebuilt myself. And thankfully, I know how to do that. I know how to rest, how to sleep, how to with the foods to eat and the training to do. And yeah, in 2018, I found myself at the World Championships on in the, in the start line of the time trial back in Maniago. And um, I, okay, I didn't ride amazingly. I, I came 13th, but I think for everything I'd been through, I'm I'm pretty proud of that 13th place. I think uh, I'm sure many of our listeners will be um, just you know amazed that you know you know how somebody who uh, you know is really struggling with many day-to-day uh, sort of uh, activities, personal care, etc., can even conceive the fact that they want to get onto a bike and and actually race at a world championship. So um, you know I think that's a it's a true sort of uh, inspiration sort of uh, to all of us and of course you know you you talked about you know the problems of balance and so on and the fact that you're sort of quite you know paralyzed down your left hand side you know technically from a, a, a cycling science point of view that that obviously creates a bit of a problem and and how have you managed to uh, sort of or what are you still doing you know to try and counteract the fact that you really only have got one one strong leg yeah it's i guess it's it's you know it's it's always it's, i guess it's looking at the solution not the problem so you could focus massively on the problem or you can you can focus on the solutions i've always thought right okay how can we how can we do things how can we manage things so i've spent a lot of my savings on trying to get things to work and a lot of things didn't work a lot of things were a complete waste of time but if you don't try them you don't know um, I was very thankful to eventually find a guy at, at Pace Rehabilitation and they, they specialize in prosthetics and they've used the technology and the science behind prosthetics to develop AFOs for cycling basically and they've worked a lot in Paralympic sport so this wasn't anything new they had already done uh, a special brace for a good friend of mine John Gildea he's, he's a C5 paracyclist and he had severed the nerves below the knee so he already had dropped foot and some issues with his legs so he'd already done a lot of work with John and when I came along to meet uh, Ian at Pace he, he already knew so he basically built me what kind of looks like a prosthetic carbon leg and I, and I it goes into the cycling shoe it's drilled and bolted into the shoe I put it on almost like a, an amputee would put on a prosthetic leg um, and I, I clip in I strap in and it allows me to ride. Uh, without it, the left leg produces zero watts. Uh, with it, I, I can produce about 24% of the power uh, through the left leg. But it's not almost producing the power that is so crucial. If I don't have this uh, device on, my leg flaps around like a basically like a, an electrical cable that's been cut loose. So it's moving all over the place. So what the what the AFO really does is it, it helps stabilize stabilize my body and it helps me be able to hold a, a strong position and then ultimately allows me to ride and, and actually get some power out of the body because I have no I have no nerves really going down that side of my body so there's no sort of pull in action I can't pull back up because I have no hip flexor action 
So any power that is getting produced, you could argue, if you were looking at the science of the revolution, you could argue that it's actually almost detrimental because it's just this dropping down power. So it's killing the stroke at the end of the, the end of the pedal revolution. So there was actually a lot of discussion. Do I just fix the left leg and then purely just cycle with one leg? Uh, for me, that I think I would really struggle with that. Um, some guys have huge success with it, but I think that I can get a little bit of power. I just have to manage it and combine that with a lot of physical rehabilitation. I've looked at all these fancy biohacking stuff. I, I think I've tried everything from the, the transcranial direct stimulation through the motor cortex and the brain to all these different devices. And I have everything on my bike now that's switched onto the right side. So brake splitters, gears, uh, everything's on the right. So my left arm is redundant. I'm very lucky that I've got enough strength in my left fingers that I can just hold on to the, the bar no more. But it was, yeah, it, it's been a real journey of learning and the, the engineering, the science. But I think that's what makes cycling such a great sport is that it, it has this, you have this opportunity to do all this stuff. And it's, you know, you, it took me back to watching the old stories of Graham O'Brien breaking down his washing machine. It's a, a kind of similar philosophy that you have to have when you're dealing with the paralysis and making the bike work for you and ultimately you want to become one with the bike and and and, I, and I've managed to do that and I worked extremely hard from 2016 to 2018 to do that um, ultimately to then be diagnosed again and have to face surgery at the end of 2018 so it was it was pretty hard to have gone through everything from 2016 to the world championships and two weeks after the World Championships, I was re-diagnosed with a tumor for the for the fourth time, and that and that was absolutely heartbreaking because at that point I kind of knew that my Tokyo dream was going to be over, and that cycling for me then was definitely going to be taking a whole different meaning rather than competing at the top level. It was actually really now it was about just trying to ride a bike. And uh, so. Um, again, you know, obviously, you know, uh, you mentioned earlier, it's, you know, you're well practiced now at this process of, of going through an operation and, 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 and the recovery and rehab uh, sort of process. Um, so obviously since, since that operation uh, in 2018, sort of, so where are you now in terms of, of that, uh, that journey um, and sort of what, what cycling are you doing at the minute? Yeah, so that was a pretty big surgery to go in to. Uh, it was the, probably the first time psychologically I'd really lost it. Uh, but I was very lucky that I had a cup of, I was having a cup of coffee with Chris Hoy actually after my, I had an angiogram done and then he was bypassing the hospital. So we had a cup of coffee and he introduced me to Steve Peters at that point and I went away and did some work with Steve in the lead up to that surgery. So that, that, that tremendously helped me just get that emotional control over over the what was going to happen in, in that surgery and for me it was I just couldn't quite believe that because the scan that was done just before the surgery it was probably early mid-August and I'd rode for Great Britain but I still had to do the Grand Des Alpes that was still a huge goal and I remember thinking I need to ride this ride in case I never ride again because I had this I just had this feeling that things it was just it was going to be a pretty hard surgery. This was going to be my my fifth surgery on my spinal cord. It was it was going to. Be, I, I wasn't sure I'd ever ride again. So I basically jumped on a plane, flew to Lake Geneva, 
I rode 740 kilometers in seven days across, I think, 15 or 16 mountain passes. It was a horrendous experience. Flew back to London. I, ha I didn't have a surgeon. My surgeon who caused the paralysis retired, so I had no surgeon. I was sat in London. I knew I had a huge tumor inside my spinal cord that was, was ultimately killing me. Um, and I thought, well, I need to find a surgeon. That was the first thing. So I remember reaching out to the Mayo Clinic in America and the surgeon said, you know, can you send me a recent picture of you? So I sent him a photo from the top of one of the Alpine passes. And he's like, no, I need, I need a recent photo. And I said, this is the most recent picture I have. It was done like a week ago. And he's like, you're riding a bike? And he's like, he says, I've got people in a hospital in the Mayo Clinic right now with the same similar tumor to you and they can't even stand. He's like, this is, this is crazy. He's like, this is like, can you get on a plane and come to America? <laughs> I want to study you. Um, and I spoke to numerous surgeons in America and they're like, yeah, we can get this tumor out, but you'll be paralyzed from the neck down for the rest of your life. You'll be on a ventilator, but don't worry, we can get it out. And I was like, well, he's definitely not the guy. I was so, so lucky that I found a guy called Professor David Choi, who actually trained in Glasgow. He did a lot of his work in Glasgow. And I just wish I'd found Professor Choi 10 years ago. This this guy is, is, is incredible. And I remember sitting with him and he said that to me. He's like, what do you want to do? And I was like, I want to get back to the athlete I am right now. I, will, I, and I know I'll never regain the arm or the leg, but I, you know, I've learned how to live with the paralysis because I can ride a bike. I said, don't, please don't take that away from me. And he's like, I can go in and do this. I, I only do complex surgeries. And he said, this is very complex, but I can go in get as much as this tumor out, we can then get radiation done and we can hopefully get some control around around what you're dealing with. I went in, I had a fifth surgery, I had a sixth surgery within the space of a week. To, to The tumor bleeds a lot during surgery, so he did one and then he did another procedure three, two or three days after the first one. I spent two or three weeks in ICU. I was in horrendous pain. It, it, it was a horrible experience, but I remember after I came out of hospital, I had a I walk bike at the end of the, the end of the bed, and I think my goal is just to get onto that bike, just get on it. Ten minutes. I remember lying there; I couldn't move again. I had to learn to stand, learn to walk, but I knew that I just I knew I know how to regenerate the body. So I, I lit, I slept lots, ate lots of clean foods, and then I remember getting onto that bike. First time I got onto it, I pedaled it for an hour, and then again it's slowly okay. I need to get back onto an outdoor bike, and I just slowly went through this process. And I remember getting onto an outdoor bike doing a couple of laps around Battersea Park. And then I started my radiation. I went through radiation. I was in radiation every day for, for six and a half weeks. So through radiation, I did, I did nothing. And then after radiation, I just slowly built up again. I was like, okay, let's get onto the bike. I, I drove out to Richmond Park. I did a loop at Richmond Park. I, I was getting overtaken by people on Boris bikes. And, you know, and I was like, it's okay, I'm, I'm back cycling. Um, I had to, and I had to rebuild completely from zero again. To, to now I, I'm back riding, I'm doing between 10 to 16 hours a week on the bike at the moment. Um, a mixture of efforts, you know, yesterday I went out and did four times 10 minute efforts. Uh, I'm not producing huge watts, you know, I, I can hit, I think I hit peak 500 watts yesterday in a sprint and I'm doing efforts at around about 300 watts. Um, but for me just to be on the bike is like, I, it's so, so important for my mental health, uh, you know, it's not for me now. I'd love to have won a world title in cycling, that was my dream. But 
at some point you have to let go of these things and you have to slightly maybe change your philosophy and you know my philosophy now is just about living where my feet are about going out and and really living with gratitude and, and being really grateful for what I have and and the fact that I can actually get on a bike and ride it's 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 amazing if if I do want to race that is my goal my goal is to try and make to the the world championships in Glasgow which are the clock is ticking away for that um there's obviously a little bit more damage to the arm and the leg you know it's, it's now I've had six surgeries there every time we go into the cord there's obviously inflammation and, and, and slight you know damage to the cord so each time it, it's made the rehabilitation that little bit harder but I'm constantly searching for solutions the the, the spinal cord injury world is moving at such a speed that there's a you know there's almost a symbiotic with artificial intelligence and spinal cord injuries that there's a lot of hope in the future that that I might even be able to move again let alone you know be paralyzed there's actually in the next five to ten years there might be the technology out there that that I am actually and not just me but everyone with a spinal cord injury is actually moving but for now having my bike and having that cycling is is uh like I I need that the thing I've got to be careful of is that I don't go crazy and go and completely smash myself so for today's a rest day and I've really got to like force myself it's blue skies it's sunny there's no wind it's the perfect day to get on a bike and do 100 kilometers but I also have to be very mindful that I need to listen to what the numbers are saying so I, I track heart rate variability every day and I, I go I have a coach that writes me a program but I also go very much on the heart rate variability stuff and, and how my autonomic nervous system is responding to the training. You know, it's, uh, I, yeah, you know, I take my hat off to you, David. You know, it, uh, I'm sure there's many listeners who'd be uh, would be quite happy of doing efforts at, at 300 watts and uh, and putting in the number of hours that you're putting in uh, in a week. So, uh, you know, definitely uh, congratulations for you know your determination, and I think that's something that uh, you know certainly evident throughout. Uh, you know, it's just this, uh, you know desire to you know to keep going and and set yourself goals and you know and I, I think that's a good lesson for all of us is you know is to think about you know what would we like to do and I think uh, it's possible you know I think you can't ever rule anything out you know it's it's as much about your own mindset um about what you can possibly achieve in the face of much adversity um so uh, definitely uh, well done and so obviously you mentioned uh, World Championships, uh, Glasgow, um, mm-hmm. 2023, the UCI World Championships, first time that they're going to be a, a composite World Championships. Um, so that's a fantastic uh, target. Um, so what what was your thoughts and what what event are you going to actually go for? Is it is it track in the pursuit or is, yeah. is are you looking at something else? My, my real love is the time trial on the road, but that that is governed so much by the course, you know, by all the variables. I'm a big guy, so yeah, if the course is flat, it it really suits me. But if it's technical, it uh, technical and hilly, it definitely doesn't suit me. But the technical side doesn't suit me now either. With the paralysis, I really struggle. So ultimately, I think my best success could probably be via the pursuit on the track. So I think that's where I'm going to target my uh, my sort of attention is going to be on that. And obviously, if the 
and I'll do the time trials on the road because I actually, I love them and they they bring me great enjoyment. Um, I probably enjoy the road stuff more than the track, but I think if I'm going to to be competitive, then I think a pursuit on a track is something that I can that can be more quantifiable and I can really sort of give it 100% focus and and I can adapt the equipment much more easier. And then when I get into a fixed position. I don't have to be worrying about bumps on the road or, or sharp turns and just basically get in and, and sort of pedal around in circles. So I think that's probably going to be my, my main, main focus is, is the pursuit on the track. I think it's probably definitely at the moment, the physical condition I'm in at the moment, I think it's probably the best way to train uh, for my body just to be able to do that sort of. And the classification I'm in, I'm a C1, so it's three kilometers. So I think it fits in very well with my with my physiology and genetic makeup. And like I say, you know, the the, the course in Glasgow for the time trial, I'm pretty much going to assume it's going to be there's going to be hills in it. So I don't think it would really suit me. Um, but the the track is a constant variable. So um, I think yeah, I, I, and I you know it'd be so cool to to compete in Glasgow in the first. You know, the, the, the fact that they're joining the par and the, it's just going to be this world cycling festival is uh, it's, it's seriously exciting to think that that's potentially going to be part of that and it's literally yeah you know it's going to be it's going to be on us pretty soon it's not going to be long until 2023. No that's right um, I suppose you know obviously listening to you there you know it, it takes me back to I know one of the comments you you uh, wrote in one of your blogs of, uh, back in uh, 2016 where you said it, it's no longer about medals or titles it's about living um, however you know I can still feel the passion in your voice um, you can't take that competitive animal out of the individual you know you want to be there you want to be pushing yourself you want to be competing against others but of course I think you know uh, as, as I'm sure the listeners will have you know heard in your story you know for you, this is living. This this is what it's all about. You know, you, the passion. You just love getting out on your bike, and for you to be able to go out on your bike every day is living. Yeah, you know, obviously, I'd love to win that, that, and I'm very, I am very competitive, and I I do everything. But I think the difference is now is that I've just I've been on such a I guess a psychological, emotional, spiritual journey with with the whole tumors and stuff, and I'm still in oncology. I still have scans. You know, I, I'm just really much about living in the moment, and um, I, that's the way I approach every day. I always think to myself, "This is the last day I was going to be alive. What would I want to do? I would want to ride my bike, and whether that's racing or just racing myself or just being out and going and doing some alpine passes, I just love it, and ultimately." having the competition side of it also gives me a little bit of purpose to my training. So I'm not just going out and just riding for no reason. I actually have, uh, I have a purpose behind every session. Everything I do has that purpose. And I guess the athlete side of me still needs that purpose to, to be able to, to, tr to be able to go out and ride 16 hours a week. I still, and to do the efforts and intervals, I, I still think I need that little bit of competition there. And when I get on the start line, in Glasgow, it, of course, I'm going to try and ride the, the fastest time to try and win. But if I came fourth, I wouldn't be devastated and upset and throwing the bike away. I'd just be very, very happy. And I think what I've learned through the diagnoses and the tumor is that, that it is just sport. Of course, it means a lot to so many people. But ultimately, the 
if you don't win, it's still, you know, you're still in a very fortunate place. You're still getting to do something that millions of people around the world would love to be able to call their job. Um, so you've got to be truly grateful for that. And, you know, t does an Olympic gold medal or a world title make you happier? Of course it does, but it's only an acute happiness. You return back to, there's a lot of evidence out there showing you, you, you return back to base level. If you look at the guy that comes fifth, okay, he's going to be disappointed for however long, but he returns back to his base level of happiness. And really, if we're working in the currency of happiness, then true happiness comes from within and being aligned with your values. And for me, just being on the bike is what makes me happy. And okay, if I win, it's dicing on the cake, but if I don't, it doesn't really matter. I'm, I'm alive and I'm still riding my bike. And ultimately, when we're fighting for our life and those very last breaths that we take on this planet, we, we can you know look back with fond memories of, of all those beautiful roads and miles that we covered and probably thinking of a really hard pursuit effort on the track and winning a world title. Okay, it might be up there, but actually for me, the greatest days on my bike have been out with my friends riding and just enjoying the sport for what it is and, and it gives you that freedom. Yes, it does. Uh, and I'm sure, I, I know I feel that way. Um, and uh, I'm sure many of our listeners uh, feel that about their cycling as well. Um, it, you know, it, it's more than just exercise. Um, that we, you know, otherwise we wouldn't do it. Um, right. You know, we wouldn't go out, you know, as, as often. We wouldn't go out and when the weather's not so nice or whatever. Um, but uh, we just do it because, you know, we love it. So, David, um, Obviously, it, uh, you know, it's uh, it's a hugely inspirational story um, and, you know, uh, I applaud you and I'm sure all the listeners will applaud you for, for your um, resilience, your dedication to, to the sport um, and, uh, you know, it makes, I, you know, I remember I think the first time I read your story thinking, you know, how could I not, you know, feel uh, invigorated, inspired uh, by this because, you know, my life in comparison has been relatively straightforward. Um, so, you know, and, and yet, you know, you've been able to uh, overcome, um, you know, the, the various um, setbacks in your life uh, and have come through and uh, obviously you're able to speak about it very eloquently. And, and it's, oh, the other thing that comes through quite clear is, you know, you're a you're an educated man who reads deeply and, and tries to understand, um, you know, his body, both on the physical and on the psychological side. And, uh, you know, certainly throughout, I think uh, for all of us, there's some great advice um, that you've given us uh, in terms of thinking about the psychology of it all, um, because we know our bodies respond, don't respond, get broken injured and you know and so on but if you don't have the psychology behind it and the drive and the determination you're not going to get anywhere yeah and, I, and that's why i love it you know i love i love the study of the human body and especially coming at it from you know from every level you know looking at the physiology the biology the psychology and then i you know i've got a real fascination now around the the neuroscience of of being in the zone and what that does and you know, that I guess almost that addiction to flow really and the neuro all that stuff that cascades in the brain and yeah, I mean I, I you know, every time I, 
I come in from a bike ride, I'm smiling and I'm happy. And, and actually what I really, I know now the, on a neurochemistry level why that is. So when I'm really struggling and living with a spinal cord, living, living at all is, is hard work. You know, we've, we've all got to pay bills and get our way through life. So there's life presents so many stressors to, to us on a daily level. But what's, what's great, I've, I've managed to use the mentors I have and the people I've learned from is to actually understand, okay, what, what can I do to really help my body, for my body to work really for me rather than against me. And that's probably, that's invaluable. And I probably can honestly say that I probably wouldn't have delved into that stuff if I hadn't been unwell. So I think having the tumor in some respects is, is obviously been, there's is the paradox of it, I guess, is that, okay, it's presented the real challenge in life, but it's also presented a real opportunity to grow and I think that also, a lot of times we focus on PTSD, but actually we we also can have post-traumatic growth as well. And I think in this instance, I it's a very fine line. And there's for sure there's days where I really, really struggle. But the great thing is, is with all the science I've read and papers I've read, I know how to, to have coping strategies. And the most simplest one I have, Richard, is just to smile. <laughs> and it's amazing just literally just the smile and the amount of dopamine that releases and the feel good factor is, is amazing and one thing that makes me smile is, is getting on my bike whether it's rain snow sleet um even if there's a wind uh, a headwind it's um it always makes me smile and the, the effect that has on the whole body as a whole and it's certainly with the spinal cord injury you know there's certain research out there that that shows that by doing this sort of training and movement, you might actually get some neural activation. So for me, there's there's huge purpose and passion about getting on the bike. Absolutely. Um, David, I, I already mentioned uh, sort of your, your website, uh, which was, uh, it's all one word, davidsmithathlete.com. Um, is, is there other ways where uh, listeners might, are you a, a tweeter or... Um, are there other places where people would find I use, and follow you? Um, yeah. I use Instagram. I'm not. I'm not. I'm usually. I'm not on there posting photos all the time because I'm usually out just trying to live life <laughs> rather than being on there. But I am on there. It's just David Smith MBE and Instagram, and I pop up there. But I also write a weekly column for the Herald. So for the for the guys in Scotland um, who can get the paper edition, it's in the paper every week. But if you're more of an online person, uh, usually the they upload it onto online as well. And yeah, obviously, and my website as well, that's there, it's got some, you know, there's a lot of little videos and stuff that capture the, the last 10 years of that journey. So, you know, for people who are, are visual learners and really, you know, attached stuff to visually, you can actually go and watch and pretty much all the surgeries and rehabilitations have been captured on video, which is, which is nice for me because it, it's always a reminder of where we come from. And I think that's very crucial in life is that, that we always know where we come from. It, I think it keeps us humble and it keeps us honest to ourselves. And I think is, you know, especially as athletes, we, and, and as human beings, we should never really forget where we come from. I think that's a, a very important lesson in life. No matter how much success we have, we all started off at one point with a dream. So I always think, you know, even the Chris Hoys of this world, at one point he was a young lad trying to learn how to ride a bike. And obviously he does it very well now, but at one point he had to learn like everyone else. So um, I always think it's important to to remember where we're from. Absolutely, absolutely. 
David, thank you very much for your time. Um, and uh, obviously, uh, we are all going to wish you as much success as possible and, you know, continue your training. And uh, we'll look forward to uh, being able to see your race uh, in Glasgow in 2023. So thank right. you. Thank you. Thank you, Richard, for having me on. And yeah, just everyone enjoy your cycling. Thank you. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed the interview. And of course, I need to thank David uh, for giving up his time to do the interview. If you want to find out more, I suggest you go to David's website, which is davidsmithathlete.com. Of course, I also need to recognise my employers, um, the University of West of Scotland. And if you'd like to find out a bit more about the courses we offer and the research we do, then please visit our website, which is uws.ac.uk. Remember, if you've got any questions you'd like us to answer in a future show, then please contact us through our website, which is cycling-science.com. Also, if you'd like professional advice or coaching from me, then please also use the contact page on our website or even through our Facebook page. Until next time, thanks for listening. And remember, good scientists always seek out quality evidence to back up the work. So never just accept what you read or hear. Seek quality sources to inform your training and racing. <laughs>